also even denying justification by faith alone. In in more recent years, in the 19th and 20th century, there was a denial of inerrancy, miracles, and the virgin birth. And in our own day, we've witnessed the watering down of God's Word, uh, a splitting of the Word, a, a taking out of the Word, in such that there are certain moral and ethical lifestyles that are now celebrated that the Bible condemns. Christians have faced a plethora of false teaching. And so we should not be surprised when you and I face similarly. But one thing I want to point out to you this morning is that when false teaching had crept into the church at Colossae, Paul did not pick up his pen to write to the pastors of the church. He did not pick up his pen to write to the deacons of the church, but rather he picked up his pen and wrote to the church. In other words, it is the individual member's responsibility corporately together to deal with false teaching. False teaching and false teachers are not a thing of the past, but are a present reality that you and I must face and deal with. We ought not to see it merely as the responsibility of the leaders of the church to confront false teaching, but that each and every one of us as a member of this church has a responsibility to make clear what the Bible teaches and to hold sound doctrine and to live holy lives. And the Lord Jesus did not leave his church without the answer to false teaching. Each and every one of us has been equipped through his word. And what we want to think about this morning is how we deal with false teaching. How do you and I deal with the drift that might be tempting us away from Jesus? Now, just to orient us around where we've been, last week in verses 8 through 15, we considered Paul's warning of the reality of false teaching. And this week, we're going to consider the nature of the false teaching. Last week, Paul warned them not to be taken in by so-called empty philosophy. And this week, we're going to see a little bit more of the nature of the false teaching that they faced. That you and I will be tempted to be drawn away by tradition and traditionalism. Doing the same thing the same way and think that that is the gospel. This morning, we want to warn ourselves and guard ourselves against such things. So I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, it's page 984 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to begin in verse 16 and finish up through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Here is Paul's point. 
Christians grow spiritually by holding fast to Christ and not by following man-made traditions. Christians are to grow spiritually. This is a point that Paul will pick up in chapter 3 and make clear that as Christians we ought to grow spiritually. We ought to grow up spiritually. We ought to deal with sin in our lives and grow to be more holy. But as Christians, we need to give ourselves to the right means. How do we grow spiritually? And here in Colossae, the church was faced with with a false teaching that was meant to be a remedy for sin. But it was the wrong means. Man-made religion, rules and regulations, stipulations. All of these were meant to sanctify the church, but they, as Paul makes clear there in verse 23, are of no value. They're worthless. They're helpless in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So I want us to orient ourselves around these two warnings we find. This passage divides quite easily in these two paragraphs. First, 16 through 19, and 20 through 23. And summarized in two words, rituals and rules. Rituals and rules won't make you more holy. Following a set of rituals won't make you holy, nor will following a list of rules. Regulations aren't designed to save. You can't legislate sin. So this morning we want to think about how you and I might be tempted to be drawn away into traditions and traditionalism. How you and I might be tempted to follow rituals and rules as means of sanctification. So first this morning, verses 16 through 19, rituals don't sanctify. Look how Paul begins here. If you're looking here at the text, first verse 16 and then verse 18. Notice the parallelism between these two verses. Let no one pass judgment on you, verse 16. Then look down there at verse, seven, or verse 18. rather. Let no one disqualify you. The nature of the false teaching was to uh, create a, a culture in the life of that church where people were insecure. They were passing judgment on one another. They thought that they themselves were not qualified to be Christians. Now, sometimes in church, you'll, you'll hear adages like, we're not to be fruit inspectors. We're not to be going around and inspecting one another's lives. Well, that's not the nature of what Paul is attacking here. What Paul is attacking here is that the, these false teachers were creating standards that were extra-biblical. It was the gospel plus some other behavior. And he identifies them here in verse 16 by saying that they were passing judgment in questions of food and drink, festival, new moon, or Sabbath. In other words, here, these were Old Testament rituals. Since Christ is ruler over all, these things were meant to unify them to Christ through faith, and they were not to know, they were rather no longer to submit to these legalistic restrictions. What these false teachers had done is take Old Testament laws and begin to say that in order to be a Christian, you had to follow Old Testament rituals. Things like certain foods and certain drinks they were forbidden from partaking of. And, and they were passing judgment on the Christians there if they were partaking in them. 
And so Paul writes and says, no, 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 no. Look here at verse 17. The remedy to this false teaching was Christ himself. He says, these are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, they were to understand that all of these Old Testament rituals found their fulfillment in Christ. In other words, the remedy to the false teaching was by holding fast to Christ. That Christ had satisfied these things, that they need no longer give in to these. In this single sentence, Paul here removes the ethical and moral burden of the Mosaic law, including the sacrificial system, by teaching that it all pointed to the person and work of Christ. Notice what he says there again in verse 17, that they're a shadow of the things to come. In other words, they pointed to the real thing, a shadow is nothing more uh, than, than the light being passed over the real thing. Shadows aren't real. They point to something else. And, and Paul says that all of that Old Testament ritualism that they were given into pointed to Jesus. That the Old Testament was really about Jesus. And all of the sacrifices that God taught his people to follow ultimately were fulfilled in Christ. And so, we ought to see then that Christ is the centerpiece of God's redemptive purposes. Therefore, that we are in Christ, these things have come to an end and fulfillment. Therefore, we ought not to give ourselves into them. Perhaps you're tempted to think, well, I, I can't mow my grass today. Because God's word says we're not supposed to you know, do any work on the Sabbath. Well, friend, today is Sunday. It's not the Sabbath anyways. It's the Lord's day. And yes, we ought to enjoy rest in the Lord. Sure, there might be some argument, but, but we don't find our spirituality in obeying the Old Testament laws. There is a place for the Old Testament in the life of the believer, but, but that is understanding of those who are fulfilled in Christ. One author put it this way, Those, therefore, who still adhere to those shadows act like one who should judge a man's appearance from his shadow. While in the meantime, he had himself personally before his eyes. For Christ is now manifested to us, and hence we enjoy him as being present. This author goes on to write, Hence the man that calls back the ceremonies into use either burdens, or rather, either buries the manifestation of Christ or robs Christ of his excellence and makes him in a matter void. In other words, when we call each other to old rituals... In order to be saved, we devalue Christ. We say that Christ doesn't matter, that he is not essential, that he is not the center of our worship. And so Paul here warns them that these Old Testament rituals will not sanctify and neither will worldly rituals. This is what he goes on to in verse 18. Now to be clear, scholars are not quite certain about what these rituals point to. There's not a specific false teaching or religion that is being highlighted here. Perhaps it was just Greco-Roman culture that Paul is pointing out to, a a sort of uh, uh, quasi-syncretistic religion where they were taking a little bit of uh, mysticism, a little bit of worship of angels. They were kind of, it was a melting pot of religion. And so here in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. That is, say that you're not qualified to be a Christian. 
the standard or basis of your salvation. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you insisting, notice the language there is that of a must, it has to be this way, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Have you ever come across somebody who said to me, said to you that God told me to do something? This is what he's talking about going on about visions. Well, I had a vision that God spoke to me and he told me to do this. Paul's warning against such false teaching. He's saying, no, don't give in to these sort of higher mystical ideas. Don't allow these to disqualify you. Asceticism is the practice of removing something in order to grow spiritually. I won't drink this, or I won't eat this, and if I don't do something, then I am somehow more spiritual than you. In other words, it's the removal of things from our life in order to gain value and standing with God. We could see where the issues would arise in the gospel. He's warning these Christians uh, from being taken in by these false teachers foolish and sinful notions of super spirituality. It was a man-made religion, as he calls it later, a self-centered religion. It was all about the things they did. They were not to give in to such errors, but recognize that true spirituality comes through Jesus Christ alone. These false teachers were seeking spiritual growth through other means than abiding in Christ. Notice here what he says in verse 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, and not holding fast to the head, notice here, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. In other words, true spiritual growth comes from Jesus. He uses the metaphor here of a body your body, when you consume food, the whole body is nourished by it. And, and if you stick close to Jesus, he says, if you remain in Christ, if you hold fast to Christ, then you will grow spiritually. It will happen. True Christians grow. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples about abide in the vine? If you abide in me and I in you, there's this truth that if we stick close to Jesus, then we will grow spiritually. As Christians, we are united with Christ, and therefore we receive the nourishment and binding material to enable us to receive spiritual growth from God. When we are connected to Jesus, then we will grow spiritually. Brothers and sisters, we want to remember that genuine spiritual growth cannot come by any other means. And there is a lot of things out there, a lot of rituals out there. If I will only do this, then I will grow spiritually. We want to be careful and cautious. It's by faith in Christ alone, by, by sticking close to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we grow spiritually. N.T. Wright says it this way, The true test of whether or not one belongs to God's people 
is neither the observance of dietary laws and Jewish festivals, nor the cultivation of super-spiritual experiences, but whether one belongs to Christ alive with his life. In other words, it's not because you had some experience that you're united with Christ. We want to be cautious and careful that we do not measure one's spirituality based on experiences, but rather on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the declarative propositional truth that we believe in. He goes on to write, It is no shame when a Christian finds that he or she cannot grow spiritually without support and help from fellow believers. It is rather a surprise that anyone should have thought such a thing possible, let alone desirable. What is, what is he going at? Look here at verse 19 again. That we ought to hold fast to the head from whom the whole body... You see... How we grow spiritually is by being connected to the body of Christ. The body of Christ being the church. The means of God's grace isn't by obeying rituals and rules and regulations, but by giving yourself to the regular means of God's grace that he's given to his church. And that is the regular preaching of God's word. Romans 10 makes clear that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. That Christians grow spiritually through the word. We heard that earlier when our sister read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. That the false teachers had that false teachers in Ephesus had drawn the church away and what would fix the problem was the word. What they needed more of was the Word. But not merely Bible reading, Bible intake, but Bible transformation. That is, we study God's Word and submit to it. The Bible says we ought to do this and so we do it. This is what Paul will argue in Colossians chapter 3. That if we have died with Christ, then we're alive with Christ. And that we ought to put off certain practices and put on others. That's the argument that he's going for. That in Christ we have the freedom and the power. We ought not to think that because we don't do certain things that we're somehow any less. Following certain rituals or traditions of men are not the means of growing spiritually but rather holding fast to Christ. By sticking close to Jesus and His bride, the church, we will be transformed by Him. But not only rituals, notice how he goes on here in verses 20 through 23, that rules don't sanctify either. Now this might come to a surprise to many of us, because, after all, we like discipline. And sometimes we think that discipline, that rules, is how we say are saved. Notice what he says here. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The word there, regulations, can be translated rules, standards, practices. Don't do this, do this. And sometimes that's the world in which we think God operates. It's a, it's a list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, do this. But the Bible here in this particular passage isn't talking about restrictions, but rather freedom, isn't he? 
He says, you've, if you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you still live in the world? In other words, he's saying that if you're united with Christ, you have died to certain things. He's reminding them of their union with Christ as a means to dissuade them from following these false teachers. They've been delivered from this world through the death and resurrection in Christ. They should not turn back to worldly means to continue to submit themselves to Christ. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you know that there's been a lot of attention given to gun laws. A lot of attention given to rules and laws concerning gun restrictions in order to bring about a certain end, right? In order to, of course, end mass shootings. And, and you know, of course, we don't want people shooting each other. And so, well, how do we do it? We just, we, we create rules. But, but you and I know that rules, you, you could create as many laws as you want, but in the end of the day, someone, if someone wants to kill somebody, that they, they're going to come up with a way to do that. And Paul here is saying that, that, listen, that's the way the world deals with problems. It just writes a bunch of rules. But, but, but in Christ, you've died to these things. You've been freed, friend. We ought not to turn back, he says, to these worldly means. And he lists them here in verses 21 and 22. Do not handle, don't taste, don't touch referring to things that are all perish as they're used. In, in other words, these the seem to reference material things, things that you consume, things that are fleeting, that, you know, don't eat this, and he says, well, it perishes, it dies. What's the big deal about it? Things you drink, things that you consume, or things you listen to. At the end of the day, notice here at the, verse, the end of verse 22, the standard of the false teaching was according to human precepts and teaching. In other words, it was man-made religion. And Paul reminds them that these false teachers were not consistent to this new resurrected life that they had in Christ. That, that rules and regulations cannot help you grow spiritually. You cannot legislate sin out of your life only through the death of Jesus can you be free from sin? And this is why Paul argues that main idea, the main point there in verse 23, that these, any rules and regulations, indeed look like they'll work. It looks like if I would just stop doing some things that I'll grow spiritually. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you can try to modify your behavior as much as you want, but none of that behavioral modification will save you. All you're doing is cleaning yourself up for hell. What you need is to die to yourself and find life in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is arguing here. In chapter 3, he will teach them a better way of overcoming sinful desires. But here, he rejects their teaching that these rules have more to do with this world than the world to come. And we want to think about how much do the traditions and rules that we put on others are more man-made than they are God-made. How much of our understanding of Christianity is more man-centered than it is God-centered? 
That's why the Word of God is central to the life of the church, because it, it orients us. It, it, it gets us back on what God has revealed in His Word that we should be and do as Christians. Furthermore, in this passage, he, he identifies that these rules have a human origin and not a divine one. That these were man-made rules, not God-given rules. We want to think about the rules and regulations we put on other Christians, the standards that we call others to live by. Are, are these our standards, or are they God's standards? Is it what I think you should do, or is it what God has commanded us to do? This is how we ought to evaluate, Paul says. Furthermore, we ought to remember that rules will never bring spiritual transformation. They never will. I mean, you could command your kids to read their Bible every day, but just merely reading the Bible that way isn't going to bring spiritual transformation. It's only when one repents and believes that those words are true and trustworthy for life that there's transformation. It's only when the Spirit breathes life that there is transformation. One author writes this, Genuine holiness, which is anticipation of the life of the age to come, in which the risen Christ has already entered, is not to be had by methods whose very nature, focusing as it does on perishable material things, binds them to the present age. In other words, don't use earthly tools that only heavenly ones can carry out. As Christians, we want to give ourselves to spiritual means of grace, where, where God is growing us and sanctifying us. We ought to understand our identity is in Christ and not in our obedience. This is what we sang earlier in O oh Great God. It was a reminder to us that it is God's work from beginning to end. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Friend, do you believe that? Have you given yourself into other means to grow spiritually? Perhaps you're just apathetic to spiritual growth. You just kind of are passive, just thinking, oh, I don't need to grow spiritually. No, if you're in Christ, you will grow. And perhaps you're not growing. Perhaps you're not being sanctified because you're not in Christ. You're not connected to the head. And so there's a warning to you this morning that if you're not looking more and more like Jesus day by day, then, then there is no Jesus in you. And so this passage warns us that those that are in Christ give themselves to the right means. And it warns us of giving in to so-called self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. You can't hurt yourself in order to become more holy. It's only as we are united to Jesus Christ and looking to Him that then we are able, by the power of the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live in Him. We are to grow into the likeness of Christ. We are to be more and more holy. But we ought to only give to the means that He has given us. Christians grow spiritually by holding fast to Christ. This means by faith. Not only the head of Christ, but the body of Christ. We ought to see that it is our responsibility to help one another grow in holiness. 
not by putting burdens on one another, not by uh, somehow looking down on others or passing judgment on one another, but encouraging one another to follow Christ, helping one another fight sin. We ought to see also in this passage that we have been set free from the bondage of the law and sin. This is what we've been thinking about on Wednesday nights in our studies through Romans 8. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are free to live, to, to live according to Christ. You have the freedom to do this. We ought to enjoy that freedom, not burden one another with, with extra man-made religion. Oh, you have to dress a certain way. Oh, you have to look a certain way. You have to you know, attend a certain school or you have to consume certain food or drink certain drinks or not drink certain drinks or listen to certain music or not listen to certain music. That somehow by doing these extra things, we are more spiritual. Our spirituality must be tied solely to Jesus. Friend, as we look more and more like Christ, we ought to pursue Christ, to stick close to Christ in these ways.